0: Welcome to the 77th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Ken Meter of the Crossroads Resource Center is known for his thorough research into what makes our food and farming system tick. His analyses of food production, transportation, and consumption trends in local communities has provided revealing insights into how much wealth is often exported from rural regions under a system that focuses on industrialized, large-scale production of raw commodities like corn and soybeans. More than one community has used Meter's research as a kick in the butt to launch a local food and farming initiative that retains more wealth locally while providing healthier eating options. Meter's latest research project goes beyond a few local communities to examine an entire state's food system. In Mapping the Minnesota Food Industry, he uses hard numbers and interviews with farmers, processors, distributors, retailers, and even food shelf coordinators to paint a comprehensive picture of the state's multi-billion dollar food industry. Meter then uses this information to provide insights into what changes could be made to develop a food system that's healthier for consumers and more economically viable for local businesses and farmers. Meter recently sat down with me to discuss his latest research. He started out by addressing a basic fact of life when it comes to food and farming. Healthy eating has economic implications, but it is also very much limited by economics.
1: I'd say that um, the the way we eat really is having tremendous cost to us right now in our society simply because we're getting so many um, bad calories or eating the wrong foods or not exercising enough after we eat and so uh, we're really enduring tremendous costs as a society for uh, a faulty diet and for bad exercise one example of that is that uh, we spend 147 billion dollars each year as a country paying for the medical costs related to obesity and that's a tremendous amount of money, but it's also, it also turns out to be half of all the money that all the farmers in the country earn for selling all of the crops and livestock they produce. So it's a tremendous slice of the food budget this country takes on. And I think the more we continue to have bad health outcomes and have to be paying for chronic conditions that are food caused by food, six of the ten leading causes of death are food-related, that inflicts tri- terrific costs on us as a society. The other side of that equation is that um, the people who purvey these foods, such as high-fructose corn sweetener that were pretty clear are not good for us, are making quite a bit of money doing so. And so our ability to move away from those sweeteners into better products or into foods that are less sugared is also limited by the fact that they have amassed considerable wealth and political power by doing so. One of the other things that struck me
0: was you, uh, this study does a really nice job of combining statistics, some of the real deep Uh, digging that you're so well known for with some great interviews with people who are out there in all sectors of the food economy. One of the kind of conclusions you come up with is that there's some really good lessons to be learned from the margins of the food system. And you talked a little bit earlier with me about when you have a very complicated system, very complex system, it's those, there's going to be a lot of margins, <laughs> and that there can be some really good stuff to be learned from those.
1: That's a really good point, Brian. I think, um, you think about this food system we have, it's global in scale, and you know, things that happen in the Middle East affect us in Minnesota, and some things we do here affect Latin America and Africa. It's really very complex, and those things are changing every day. Prices are changing on a daily basis, and to access to credit is changing on a daily basis, and it's really hard to kind of understand how to deal with that complexity, and Often the folks who are the most astute about that are the people who sort of carve out a little terrain on the edge of the system and just try to use the resources of the system for what they can and make good things happen. Uh, one good example of that is in Minnesota, where we started out in 1969 with a few farmers and consumers and a farm in Wisconsin saying, we, we need to have a new food system. And they decided the vehicle to get there was to start food cooperatives. They started the first, co- first one, which was North Country Co-op with a mission to feed low-income people and have bulk foods at a lower price and healthy grains and fresh fruits and vegetables. And that action at the edge of a very large, very mainstream corporate food system in the middle of a very major farm state has now blossomed into a $120 million industry, where Minnesota now has 10% of the co-ops in the country. That work on the edge of the system created a terrifically strong economic vehicle and because they were on the edge, they had to learn how to work within the system and outside of the system. They learned very vividly the workings of the food system itself, but also what some of the alternatives looked like. And and, and I guess speaking of that, one of the other concepts that really struck me
0: looking through the report was this idea of using levers to create change or to bring about innovation or to, to change a direction. And you really gave me a nice explanation of how you can use Small movements, uh, the the idea of using a lever is kind of using small manipulations to create larger changes and maybe multiple changes rather than the old
1: way of looking at it where you're kind of using brute force to get one change. If I wanted to move my hand from uh, one point to another point, I can either move my hand or I can move my shoulder in a way that gets my hand where it wants to go. And and often, moving in the shoulder, it's a more subtle movement. It takes less energy, but it's just as effective in getting my hand from one point to another point. And that's a way of economizing my energy and having the same outcome. Another way we talked about that was um, the sort of tremendous difference that grass-fed beef makes for us um, compared with the corn-fed beef we're getting. If, if you plant grass for pasture, you're not only investing in roots that will retain your soil and keep it on the farm, the, you're also producing um, grass that will take some of the pollutants out of the uh, off the farm and hold it and, and keep it from the river so the, the water becomes cleaner. You may actually need less, you, you will need less chemicals too, so you're going to put less chemicals on the field. Uh, if you're feeding cattle grass, uh, they're going to have less danger of E. coli than if they're eating corn. And you're also going to produce a meat that's healthier, that has some good lineaic acids that are healthy for our bodies. In this very simple act of planting grass pasture for beef, you get all of these outcomes that are really positive, which is you have healthier animals, you have healthier consumers, you have healthier soil, cleaner water. And that's an example of one system lever, which is pasturing beef. Um, which creates all kinds of benefits for lots of um, parts of the system at once. It's a very dense way of operating where a very simple shift in some ways just has lots of ramifications. And when you get to those multiple benefits or multiple outcomes, uh, that's a real sign that you're learning how to move the system in a better way with a lot of efficiency. Yeah, I guess the
0: more conventional way would be, I don't know, one example might be if you want that, a certain health benefit in a food product or a certain um, yield jump that you use, say you insert a gene, that type of thing. And, it, and it's you're getting that single benefit, quote unquote, but you're not it's, it's not uh, multiple benefits. And it's it comes at a pretty high price. You're very expensive, kind of forcing it into the system a little bit.
1: Well, and I think it also, that strategy puts you on a, a level of dealing with symptoms rather than causes. So you you may get a product that grows faster, but for instance, we're, we've been splicing genes and maneuvering genes and inserting gene fragments into to grains now, and what we're finding is that uh, you get much more productive production when you have a successful genetically modified crop. But... The nutrition per per unit of that product is so much less that you're actually getting net less nutrition per grain, even though it's producing at a much higher rate. And so you often can also have these unin- unintended consequences because you're focusing so narrowly on producing as much grain as possible that you don't notice that other things are going haywire. You'd said one of the big surprises for you in working on this report. You talked to people in
0: all sectors of the food economy here in Minnesota, uh, from the big ones to the to the like you said the people on the margins. And one of the things that surprised you was, in some ways, no matter what size they were, one of the key elements in their success was
1: relationships. You're right. That really was a surprise. I, I started this uh, commission to do this study, and I really was very pleased with the fact I'd have a, an opportunity through this research to really interview some of the leading food businesses in Minnesota. And this is a very big food state. We have... A hundred, you know several hundred billion dollar food economy here, and uh, I look forward to really seeing a lot of insights into how business work that are hard for me to get in my normal life and as I interviewed the leaders in the food system, especially the people making the most difference in creating new alternatives, what really struck me was how they said to a person that our business survives primarily because of the relationships we build, both with our suppliers and our customers. If we have loyalty from them, if they understand we're going to have tough times and may have some dilemmas to face, we'll have a stronger business than if we're simply addressing the bottom line. So one example of this relationship story for me, which again, this was sort of a surprise to him for me, but I, I decided to, to interview Coastal Seafoods because this is a business that was grown in Minnesota over the last 20 years that at a time when it was very difficult to get fresh seafood in the Twin Cities, you could maybe get frozen shrimp and frozen cod, but there was very little fresh coming in, except for a very few products. And Coastal Seafoods decided they could find a way to make a niche happen, and of course a lot of that is depending on this being an airport hub and having access to the world markets from airport travel. But as I talked to the folks at Coastal Seafoods, they told me a story about how they ran their business. And it occurred to me that what they're doing is so much more difficult than selling local produce because uh, they might buy fish from off the coast of Vietnam one day and off the coast of Africa the next because it's not available or because there's a better quality somewhere else. So the supply is changing daily, hourly. The price is fluctuating. They have a product that spoils very quickly so that they have to keep it very cold, keep it very fresh. Otherwise, it smells bad. It's not marketable at all. They have to throw away a lot just because it's going to go stale. And yet they've been able to totally change the seafood industry in the Twin Cities by trading these products, creating a niche for high-quality, fresh products that are coming from all over the world, coming to our restaurants our stores on a daily basis and again the story coastal seafoods told me was that this business is all about loyalty and relationships that's really what drives it and they they told a story about a um a, a fisherman they have in the gulf coast who has a small boat he sort of has a very gourmet niche operation harvesting fish and he's this guy may be out of touch for three weeks at a time because his motor will be broken. He might have not have the boat going out. He might be out of cell range for a long time. I don't know what he's going to do, but when he comes in and calls me, I'm going to buy everything I can from him because I know he will sell me the highest quality available. And I don't care if it's different the next day. I don't care if it's not re- re- reproducible product day after day. I really like to buy from him because I know he'll give me the highest quality. And I can be really demanding of him. At the same time, I know he'll deliver, and that loyalty has allowed us to stay together doing business despite that uncertainty. And to me, that's such a parable for what we're going to face with changing oil supplies, where you might not be able to get food from California because the oil will not be there. How will we have suppliers that uh, have to change the location of vegetables daily? How do we localize our food supplies? How do we have those relationships of trust that kind of go through tough times and you don't just drop somebody and buy from somebody else. You really say, I'm going to diversify my my business to be more resilient and kind of hedge against that risk.
0: To listen to a series of podcasts featuring Ken Meter providing a broad description of the U.S. food and farming system and what changes are needed to make it more sustainable, check out Ear to the Ground episodes 51 to 53. For more on Meter's most recent study, Mapping the Minnesota Food Industry, as well as his other research into local food systems and agriculture in general, see the Crossroads Resource Center website at www.crcworks.org. That's crcworks.org. Dot org, or you can call 612 If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at at or you can call 612 Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.